Yvonne? Not on? Yvonne? Keep talking? Keep going? All right, here we go. Well, good morning. And before I, before I start today, I just want to thank you for all the prayers that uh, you said this week on behalf of uh, yours truly. Um, I've felt the, the Spirit of God lifting me up this week. And, and, uh, but, but it also occurs to me that really, perhaps you should have been praying for yourselves because the first draft of the sermon came in at about two hours. And uh, unless you guys want to be here until 4 p.m. Um, so actually, I talked to the pastor, and, you know, I said, Pastor, this is, I got too much stuff here. You know, what do you think I should cut out? And he came back and said, well, maybe you should just make it two weeks. And uh, that's the last time I asked the pastor for anything <laughs> or any help. Um, so just to warn you, I might be back here next week, depending on how this goes. Um, okay. Well, I think it's fair to say that everybody wants to go to heaven, right? Everyone wants to go to heaven. And even those on the street, you might ask, who might say, well, you know, I don't really believe in heaven. If you gave them a choice between heaven and hell, then they would pick heaven every time. Because everyone wants to go to heaven. So it's really amazing then how little most people seem to think about eternity, how little most people think about heaven. And in my experience, most people that you meet on the street, most people in our world, seem to give it very little thought at all, right? And maybe it's because there's this popular notion that most people, in fact, almost everybody would make it to heaven. And of course, we're told, don't worry about it because everyone will make it. And the culture likes to tell us that heaven is the default destination. In fact, it's the, it's the default destination, and if, you, if you're going to go to hell, then you have to be really, really bad, like Adolf Hitler bad, or Jack the Ripper bad. But most people, everyone else, are headed to heaven. Well, the Bible has a few disturbing things to say about that, that flies in the face of what of that kind of logic. For instance, the Bible reckons heaven to a narrow gate that's hard to find and even harder to enter. And you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read you Matthew 7:13, which says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. There are many, many who enter through this broad gate that leads to destruction. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So the way to life is narrow, and it's hard to find. And what if you do find it? Well, there's another verse. You're still not out of the woods. In Luke 13, 24, it says, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not, what? Be able. So it's not even enough to know where the door is. Many will still not be able to enter. So it seems it's not so easy after all to get to heaven. And it seems that most people, in fact, in the world will not make it. And that's the default. Well, if you've been around this church or um, really any church for any length of time, you probably know what the door to heaven is. Of course, the door to heaven is what? 
Jesus, repentance and faith in Jesus. That's how you get to heaven. Well, that's a relief. Except for a pesky little verse in 2 Corinthians 13.5, and again, let me just read that to you. This verse says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test. So my friends, have you tested your faith? Does your faith pass the test? What kind of faith is it that God is looking for? Well, today, we're going to examine together a frankly pretty disturbing story about a man who, on the surface, looks like he has exactly the right kind of faith. But then this man meets Jesus. And Jesus tests him. And we'll see this man fails the test. And what was it about this man that caused him to fail the test? And how can we avoid such a fate ourselves? Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And we'll start from verse 17. And while you're finding that, let me just give you a little bit of context of where we are here in Mark. In Mark chapter 10, we find Jesus near the end of his three and a half year earthly ministry. He's traveling to Judea on his final journey towards Jerusalem, where just in a few short weeks, he's about to die on the cross. And by now, Jesus' reputation is well known. Words of his miracles of healing have gotten around. Words of his amazing teaching have gotten around. In fact, there is no one who taught like Jesus had. And also, the religious leaders, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were already trying to figure out how they were going to get rid of him. Because the, the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, what they were trusting in is that you would get to heaven by doing good works, by obeying the law, rules and regulations. And Jesus consistently opposed them. In fact, he continually castigated them for their externalism and their hypocrisy. And none of this was a secret, which makes what transpires in this verse that we're about to read all the more surprising. So let's uh, follow along as I read from verse 17 to verse 22. Um, here we go. As, we, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt the love for him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Let's pause here and pray. Father, I pray that we would understand these verses rightly and that after we understand these verses, Lord, that your spirit would enable us to 
um, reflect what's in these verses with what we see in ourselves. Help us to know our faith is real. And Lord, then help us to live a life of obedience and dedication to you because we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in these six verses, what we find is three elements of saving faith that Jesus teaches us through this story. And there's three elements of true saving faith that Jesus teaches us here. Um, actually, there's really only two, and I've sort of added one at the end that comes off of some of the verses after this. But, um, but three elements to make things simple. And as we go through them, you know, try to compare the quality of this type of faith to your own faith. See if your faith is genuine. So the first point is that true faith finds goodness in God alone. True faith finds goodness in God alone. Let's start from the beginning in Mark 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him. Stop right there. So we find Jesus here. It's probably early in the morning. He's about to set out on another day of journey to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, a man appears. And this man is remarkable. This man is an exceptional man. He's not any man that you would meet off the street. And we know a few things about this man. The first thing we know from later in the passage in verse 22 is that this man was very rich. This man had a lot of possessions. And by the way, this event is recorded in two other Gospels, in, in Matthew and in Luke, Matthew 19 and Luke 18. Um, and both of those Gospels tell us something a little bit different about uh, this man. Luke tells, him, tells us that he is a ruler. And a ruler of what? So if you search for the word ruler in, uh, in the Gospels, you see that there's two possibilities that he could be. Um, the first is that he could have been a ruler of a synagogue. This is probably the most likely uh, most likely choice. He could have been the ruler of a synagogue, which means he would be the chief elder of the synagogue. And a chief elder would be the leader among elders, ultimately responsible for the spiritual health of his, uh, of his, of his temple, as well as the physical well-being of the temple. Well, the other possibility would have been um, he could have been a ruler in the sense that he was the member of the Sanhedrin. This would be uh, the primary religious council of Jerusalem at the time. And in fact, Nicodemus, if you remember, in, in John 3, was called a ruler himself. Well, either of these two possibilities would have been impressive positions. So this was a man of, of great power. And what's more, Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 19 calls him a young man. So on top of this, he was also unusually young. And if you put this all together, he is the rich, young ruler, right? And that's sort of the, the popular name that this passage is called. You have to go from all the Gospels to pull that together. But this is actually very remarkable because elders, and especially chief elders, were usually older men. They don't just give anybody that position. They would have to have been unusually esteemed in that community, unusually successful, unusually powerful to have been elevated to this position. You know, if we were to take that into America today, um, this kind of man would have been a pop culture icon, right? He would have been the guy who has his face regularly on the cover of Money Magazine or Fortune Magazine 
You know, I, I think of a Mark Zuckerberg or a young Steve Jobs. That's who this man was. So this guy was really somebody. He was very successful, very intelligent, and he had managed to rise up to the top of not only the financial world, but the top of the religious world as well. And all this at a young age. He was an impressive man. So what did this man want with Jesus? Well, I want you to know from the text in verse 17 that the manner in which the man came. This, this apparently was an attitude of, at first glance, humble submission. Notice that he ran up to him. This man ran, he didn't walk, and, and this suggests a sense of desperation. Um, you know, running back then was undignified because of, you know, they, they generally wear robes, and uh, running would have to hike up your robe, and, and to run would mean that you were really desperate. They preferred to walk. And this man not only ran up to Jesus, but he knelt, right? Which would signify a level of humility, placing yourself under somebody. And despite this man's elevated position, people like this don't kneel, all right? People kneel before him. He doesn't kneel. But here he kneels before Jesus. And he came to ask Jesus one question. And that question was, and this is remarkable, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you might say that looking at this verse, that this man has asked exactly the right question, right? If you were in Jesus' shoes, you would have said, finally, somebody who gets it. I mean, how many people have come up to you and asked you this question? If you're an evangelist, you're engaging in evangelism, this is your dream, right? Um, nobody asks you this question. It just doesn't happen. And in fact, it doesn't actually happen to much to Jesus either. There was only one other recorded account that, that uh, in the Bible that someone was so direct, and that was in Luke 10, 5, 25, uh, when a lawyer asked Jesus the same question. And by the way, the response that Jesus gave in that case was almost exactly the same as the response he, gave, he gives to the rich young ruler today. And, and that's an interesting data point. No, many people who come to Jesus, in fact, most people who come to Jesus, even today, um, and especially back then, came to have their material needs met, right? They came because they knew that Jesus could create food out of nothing, or that Jesus could cure their illnesses, right? Not many people came for eternal life, and that's how it is today, too. But this guy doesn't need anything material. He has all of that. And this is what's interesting here, is that despite all of the things he had, despite the wealth, despite the power, he knew that he was still missing something. His soul is disturbed. And remember, this is a religious leader, right? This is like the chief elder of a temple, and he knows on some level that he's missing eternal life. So, so far, if we look at this guy, he looks pretty good. He looks like a prime candidate for, for a member of a church or even eventually a leader. This is a pretty good guy. So what went wrong? What went wrong? There's a hint, even that very question he asked, of what proved to be the root cause of his problem. And, and it was one word. And the problem is found in one word, and that word has two letters in it. And that's the word do. The word do. In fact, 
if you look at Matthew 19's account, uh, I'll just read it to you. You don't have to go there. Matthew puts it this way. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might eter- obtain eternal life? What good thing shall I do? You see, this man thought that the way to heaven was doing good things, doing good works. You know, maybe this man came to Jesus hoping that Jesus would give him a new commandment to follow or that he would seal you know, he would give him a particularly important task to do that perhaps only he could do with his vast resources. And this would prove to be meritorious to God. You know, none of that would have faced him if Jesus gave him 10 new commandments. He would have received that joyfully. But whatever it was, he was looking for something that would gain him such favor with God that he would make his case for getting into heaven on the basis of his own works. Well, at this point, we stop and think, what would we expect Jesus to say? Um, you know, if, if somebody came up to you and, and you knew that they wanted to, uh, to get to heaven on the basis of their works, you know, we might preach the gospel. You might say, look, you've got it all wrong. You can't work your way to heaven. If you've broken the law at one point, you've already broken the whole law. A lifetime of good deeds will not wipe out even one sin. Your only hope is grace. And that grace can only be found in Christ. Right? So that's true, but that's not how Jesus answers the man. This man, this message would have bounced right off of this man because this man does not yet understand the depths of his sin. Instead, Jesus responded in a, I guess, an expected way. Look in verse 18. Matthew, uh, Mark 10. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's an interesting response, isn't that? Why would Jesus say that? Well, you know, if, if you just kind of look at this verse uh, out of context, this, look, this verse looks strange. It might lead you to conclude two erroneous things. First, it might lead you to conclude that Jesus is not good. And second, it might lead you to conclude that Jesus is not God, right? But, of course, neither of those things are true. We know Jesus is good, and we know that Jesus is God in human flesh. Many other scriptures, even here in the book of Mark, make those things clear. So, so let's try to understand what Jesus is saying here. Well, the first thing to understand is that it's unusual for this man to address Jesus as good. This is an unusual thing. It's not normal. People don't normally go around addressing each other as good teacher. Um, you know, the, the religious of the leaders at this time, they certainly didn't turn down or shun lofty titles, right? They, they liked to have lofty titles. Um, they liked to be called that, as it tells us in the Bible. But good is one that they would, they would uh, shy away from because they thought it ran too much of a risk of blasphemy. And uh, they would say, only God is good. So you shouldn't go around calling people good. And in fact, no one else in the Gospels ever called Jesus good teacher. This is the only man who does this. So this is an unusual thing. And this man probably thought that he was paying Jesus some sort of compliment, right? Um, he probably thought he was maybe flattering Jesus or showing that he got it. But Jesus doesn't take it as a compliment. And, and why not? Well, the problem is that this man had an underdeveloped sense of goodness. This man, along with everyone else who had tried to worked their way to heaven, thought this. They, he thought that goodness meant that you try really hard. That's what he thought goodness meant. 
And these people would say, you know, sure, I've made mistakes. You've heard that, right? Sure, I've made mistakes. Sure, I'm not perfect. But I try really hard to be a good person. And I think that when I get to, get to the gates of heaven, God will see that. And this man tried harder than all of, the, all of those men. And of course, what this man failed to understand is that God's standard of goodness was not to try hard. It was to be what? Perfect. It was to be perfect, always, all the time. And if you've ever sinned once, even as a child, then by God's standard of goodness, you are not good. You've already been disqualified. So this man should have known this, because even in his Old Testament, there were verses like this in Psalm 53. Uh, Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And there's many verses Besides that, it's clear that there's no one good except God. So this man, what this man needed that, Jewish, that Jesus knew, was that this man needed an adjustment of what good meant. He had too low of a standard of what good meant. So Jesus proceeds to adjust his thinking by raising the bar of goodness to the proper level. That's why he says, no one is good except God alone. And of course, the unspoken implication here is certainly not you, No one is good, but certainly not you, rich young ruler. And Jesus is going to demonstrate demonstrate this for him vividly in the next verse, in verse 19. Um, It says, You know the commandments, Jesus says. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So what's Jesus doing here? This, of course, is the law, right? This is the Ten Commandments. Specifically, I mean, Jesus cites all the commandments. He says, you know the commandments. But then he cites a subset, the ones that are relating um, to other people. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. So back up a second here and ask yourself, what is Jesus saying here? Is he preaching salvation by works here? Is, Is he saying that if you follow these commandments, then you will live, you will get the eternal life that you crave? No. Jesus is bringing this man face to face with the law of God so that he could show this man his failure before it. And that's the purpose of the law. In fact, Paul tells us this in Romans 7. The law is never meant, was never meant to be obeyed unto salvation. That's impossible. And we blow it by the time we're even four. And I know that because I have a four-year-old. Um... But rather, we're supposed to look into the law and we're supposed to see our own reflection in it and then we see our own sinfulness and our own hopelessness at ever following it. So Jesus is using the law as a mirror to try to get this guy to see his sinfulness. And how does this man respond? Does he respond with humility and contrition and repentance? Well, look with me in verse 20. Jesus, um, and he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Wow. So in light of what we said, this sounds like a brazen and ridiculous comment, right? But you know, I believe this man was sincere. I believe this man was sincere. You know, the way that the Pharisees got around the fact that the law was impossible to follow, and and this man might have been a Pharisee, uh, because they, they, they knew the law was impossible to follow, or they treated a tradition that they would say would be the interpretation of the law. And this tradition 
would create external rules and regulations around God's law that when obeyed, they said would act like a fence that would keep you out of trouble, keep you safely away from violating God's commandments. And by this time, this sort of man-made tradition had largely replaced God's law as the highest authority in the land. Of course, there was two problems in this strategy. First, the, pro- the first problem is that external rules can never affect the wickedness of your heart, right? And you know as well as I do, you could just sit on your bed all day and do nothing and you can still sin. But God is primarily concerned with your heart. And the second problem is that these rules themselves were regarded as corrupt and wicked by Jesus himself. In fact, just turn back two chapters to Mark 7, verse 6, and just read this with me. And he said to them, this is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandments of God you hold to the traditions of men. And he was also saying to them, you are experts at, listen to this, setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. You see, that's how the rich young man could say with a straight face that he obeyed the commandments from his youth. He obeyed the traditions around the commandments. In fact, there's somebody else in the Bible, I'd like you to see this too, who also sincerely thought he obeyed the law for much of his life. And that's the Apostle Paul. And just turn real fast to to Philippians chapter 3 verse 4. And I just want you you to see this. I I was blown away by this. Paul says here in Philippians 3 verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He's talking about his works here. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and Listen to this last part. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found what? Blameless. See, here the apostle himself thought that, was saying that he thought he was blameless according to the righteousness in the law, just like the rich young ruler. But see, what happened to Paul was that he then met Christ on the road, and he saw the goodness of Christ. And then when he saw the goodness of Christ, he compared that with his own goodness. And all he could do was fall flat on his face. And in fact, just keep reading in verse 7. This is what happens to his self-perceived goodness. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying all those things he was saying before. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ and, be found in, and may be found in him. Listen to this one. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. See, when Paul met Christ, he saw that his goodness was nothing more than filthy rags. And he knew that he needed the righteousness of God that came on the basis of faith. But this man, back in Mark chapter 10, this rich young ruler, was still trusting tragically in his own goodness. And Paul, of course, just reckoned that to rubbish, right? This is all rubbish. This is manure. And this man was still trusting in his manure. 
It's offering manure to God. But Jesus is, an, is really good at this. He's an expert surgeon, and he knows exactly where to cut to expose this man's hypocrisy. And with one sentence, he cuts his heart open and shows him the ugliness of his own heart. And by the way, this brings us to the second point of what true faith is. Not only does true faith find goodness in God alone, but true faith finds treasure in Jesus alone. True faith finds treasure in Jesus alone. Look at verse 21. It says, looking at him, Jesus felt the love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Uh, this is really remarkable. Um, according to one commentary, the word for look, right, that Jesus looked at this man, the word for look is an intensified form of what you would normally use for the word, for the word look. And this means to look intently, to scrutinize. Jesus is looking at him up and down. Um, he's looking into the depths of his soul and he's looking this man over. And his response, believe it or not, is love. Jesus felt the love for him. This was a man who's a rebellious, a proud sinner. And for this man, Jesus felt a love, a tender compassion. This is, Jesus knew, somebody who desperately wanted to enter the kingdom of heaven but was unable. This is like a sheep without a shepherd and it breaks Jesus' heart. And by the way, I just want to step back a little bit and, and, and speak to you that this is an unbeliever here. And if you're an unbeliever, you should also know that Jesus' heart is similarly broken over you. Jesus would so want you to turn from your sin and unto grace. He would so want you to spare you from the eternal torment that you richly deserve and you're headed for. He wants that for you too, and, and he wanted that for this man. And so what he says next, he says this out of love. Not to make him sad, not to disappoint this man. Jesus tells him exactly what he needs to hear. So in this statement that Jesus is going to say, Jesus does two things. First, he, he exposes the man's idolatrous heart. And second, he calls the man to faith. So, you know, look at the verse. It says, Jesus tells him to sell all his possessions to give to the poor, exchange it for treasures in heaven. Now, some people like to take this verse out of context, right? And say that Christians shouldn't have money, that that's inherently bad. And that Christians should just give all they have to the poor, walk around like vagrants, and God will accept you on the basis of your charitable works. There's some people who say that, and that's ridiculous. That's not what's going on at all. This is not a general call to divest yourself of money. This is Jesus performing open-heart surgery and revealing the idol of this man's heart. You see, the problem here is not money. The problem isn't money. The problem is this man's heart. And it's important to understand this. There are plenty of rich people in the Bible that are not called to divest themselves of wealth. I'll just name a few. There's Job. There's King David. There's the guy who paid for Jesus' tomb. There's even Philemon, who the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to in your New Testament. All these people were rich. None of them were called to give all they have to the poor. Because having money isn't the problem. Your heart is. You cannot love God and money, right? You cannot serve God and money. One thing can only rule your heart. And if it's money, it can't be God. It can't be Jesus. So Jesus shows him in, in no uncertain terms what he truly loves, and that's his money. 
My friends, this is idolatry. That's what this is. This rich young man has for all his life been breaking the first and greatest commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And you see, this man has just told Jesus that he has, com- he has followed all the commandments from his youth, hasn't he? You think you've kept all your commandments since your youth, Jesus says, maybe with a wry smile. What about this one? What about that one? What about the one that says you love the Lord your God? See, Jesus says one thing you lack, you don't love God, and you never have. It's always been about your money. And, you know, for this man, it's his money. But for the next man, it could be something else. It could be his status, his fame, his family even. His success, his accomplishments, his reputation, his comfort, his entertainment. See, we could go on and on. Anything that takes the place of God on the throne of your heart is your idol. So I ask you, what's your treasure? Is it Jesus or something else? And by the way, how do you know what you're treasuring? Let me just give you three quick questions that you can ask yourself to test what you treasure, okay? And this is really simple questions. Number one is, what do you spend your money on? What do you spend your money on? What do you spend your time on? And what are you passionate about? Those are three questions. What do you spend your money on? What do you spend your time on? And what are you passionate about? Is the answer to those three things Jesus? The things that Jesus loves? Or is it something different? Is it something of the world? Is it something for yourself? Remember, this man came to Jesus looking for a meritorious task to perform. And Jesus gave him a task, all right? Jesus says, this is your task. Not ten more commandments. I just have one thing I want you to do. I want you to smash your idol. Jesus says, smash your idol. But this man was unwilling to do that. Of course, Jesus didn't just stop at giving away your possessions. That's not all he stops at. He says after that, if you notice, he says, after you do that, come and follow me, right? This is not just smash your idol, but this is a call to faith. And you see, Jesus isn't operating here in any way different than, than how he operates for you and I. This is not a special case. This isn't even unprecedented. In fact, if you remember all 12 of, of Jesus' disciples, he said, comes up, to, to, comes up to, to Peter, drop your nets, come follow me. He says that to James, he says that to John. All the apostles did it. This is simply calling a man to faith. And friends, Jesus would call you to the exact same faith. He asks this of everyone who would follow him unto eternal life. He says, come, follow me, believe me, trust me, obey me, make me the center of your life. Make what's important to me important to you. Make my purposes your purposes. That's what Christ wants. He says, make it all about me. What's not about me, what competes with me for your affections and your love, all of that other stuff, get rid of that. That's what Jesus says. But at this point, the story takes a, a tragic turn. And this is, this is sad. In verse 22, Mark 10, But at these words he was saddened and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. 
This is amazing. This man seemed like he asked the right questions. He seemed like he came with the right attitude. He even asked the right person how to get to eternal life. But this man sought to enter through the narrow door, right? But he was unable. This man was a slave to his money. He thought he owned his property, but in reality, his property owned him. And that's now clear. His love for money has cost him his soul. This man is distraught. He's distraught because he knows exactly what he just did. He knows exactly what he's walked away from. In fact, Mark here uses a particularly colorful word for, word for the word saddened. Um, it means to be shocked or to be appalled. And in fact, Matthew 16, uh, 3, Jesus uses the same exact word, saddened, to describe a red and threatening sky from which a storm would surely emerge. This was an overcast, red and threatening sky, and that was the mood of this man. You know, Alistair Begg reckons this sadness to that of a patient. And you know, imagine you're, you're a patient and you walk into your doctor's office and your doctor says, I'm sorry, but you have this aggressive form of cancer. Um, left by yourself, you will die. But the good news is that there's a treatment, and it won't be easy, it won't be painful, it, it will be painful, but your chances of success are high if you undergo this treatment. And, um, and the patient thinks it over and decides, you know, the treatment is just too hard to go through. I am not willing to do that. And he walks away sad because he knows what the disease will do to him. And he knows that he's walked away from the only treatment that could have saved his life. That's the kind of sadness that's in this man's heart. And my friends, let me just talk to you for a second. If you treasure anything more than Jesus, then it will make you sad. It will disappoint you. It won't deliver the happiness and satisfaction that you crave. Only Jesus can do that. You know, the title of my message today was The Man Who Gained the Whole World But Forfeited His Soul. That was the title. And in fact, Jesus had just got done warning his disciples about this very thing. And just turn back in two chapters to Mark chapter 8 and look at verse 34. And this is just a recurring theme here. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, verse 35, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This was an object lesson for that verse. My friends, true discipleship requires you to lose your life. You must take up your cross if you desire to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means you put yourself to death. You put your idols to death. You put your desires. You put your ambitions. Whatever occupies the throne of your heart, that is the idol you have to smash. This man couldn't do it. And that's the last we see of this guy. You know, we would hope that he would eventually be saved. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But maybe after Jesus died, we would hope that he would finally understand that eternal life was available, not through his own merit, but through that of Jesus Christ. We'll never know until we get to heaven. Well, in the short time we have remaining, I'm probably already over, but there's a final point about true faith. I just want to make sure you understand, and I'll be very fast about this. The third point, not only does true faith find goodness in God alone, not only does true faith find treasure in Jesus alone, but true faith 
looks to a great reward. True faith looks to a great reward. This man was offered the deal of a lifetime by Jesus. This was a great deal. And in fact, Jesus had more to say after this man left about how good of a deal this was. And we won't have time to look at it today, maybe next week. But I just want you to look at verse 29 of Mark chapter 10. This is what Jesus says after this man leaves. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and, age, and in the age to come, eternal life. You see, my friends, true faith isn't just sacrifice. True faith isn't just a call to give up stuff, right? True faith is a call to reward, unimaginable reward. This is a call to give up worthless things for worthy things. This is a call to give up insignificant things for things that are significant. This is, you understand, this is not a sacrifice at all. We're so nearsighted that for Jesus to tell this man to give up all his money and, and give it to the poor, this sounds really radical to us. But is it really that radical? This is like meeting a beggar on the street and this man is in filthy rags and, and you say, hey fellow, if you, uh, if you take off your rags, I'm going to give you this nice brand new wardrobe from, I don't know, Nordstrom's or wherever it is. Um, it's all yours. You just have to take off your rags. My friends, don't clutch your rags like this rich young ruler did. If you haven't already, come to Christ. Come to Christ today. There's no time to delay. But, you know, if you're a believer, and this is the last thing I'll say, this passage also has a message for you. Because perhaps you do love Christ in your heart, and perhaps you do want to obey him. But as time marched on, as, as uh, the years went by, maybe you grew weary, and you started to cast some longing looks back at your former idols. Or... Maybe God, in the course of due time, has identified idols in your heart that you didn't even knew was there. And that happens. It happens a lot. So if that's you, realize first and rejoice that there is forgiveness in Christ. Amen? There is forgiveness. But you know what? After you realize that, Christ would ask you to repent. And he would want you to smash your idols. So I encourage you to look at your life, and especially in light of communion today. Are Christ's passions your passions? I mean, do you even know what it is that Christ is passionate about? If you call yourself a Christian, are you spending your time, your money, and your passions on what Christ is passionate about? Or are you playing with your idols? Smash your idols and live your life for Christ. Well, next week, if I'm given the privilege, we'll see how Jesus then turns to his disciples and then uses this event of the rich young ruler to give them an object lesson about what true discipleship, what true humility, and what true heavenly rewards are. Let's pray. Father, we must not forget that every one of us in this room is many, many times richer than this rich young man was. And whatever problems he had with his possessions owning him, we have far more in this age of technology and abundance. This rich, intelligent man 
could never have even imagined the wealth and the abundance that today we take utterly for granted. And so if he had a problem with his wealth, then us far more. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to identify the idols of our hearts, give them up for the sake of the surpassing glory that's in Jesus, that we would realize that our goodness in ourselves is like filthy rags, to find goodness instead in Jesus alone by faith, and then we would have the reward of eternal life. Lord, I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.